What I wanted to talk about tonight are um, two types of happiness that the Buddha talked about. And I wanted to make the distinction between these two types of happiness and talk about them and then talk about how through the Dharma and through meditation practice, it actually can lead us to both of these types of happiness. Um, The first type is what we all typically think of when we use that word happiness. Um, So we can all think of what that is for us. It's being happy, (laughs) The, the actual experience of happiness. So that would be a whole range of experiences that we don't have. Pain, loneliness, anxiety, stress. All of these that we might call negative, difficult, dark, whatever adjectives you want to use. Those kind of experiences. Right? If we're having those, we tend not to be happy. Right? And that we are having more of a different range of experiences, the ones we might call many different flavors of it, contentment, fulfillment, gladness, joy, serenity. There's a whole range of experiences. But basically, it is the actual arising of whatever we associate with that word happiness. So that's... It sounds kind of silly to talk about it like that because that's happiness that that depends on having the experience of being happy, right? It sounds kind of silly to say it that way. But that is what most of us think of as happiness. Um, It's what the Buddha would call um, conditional happiness. In other words, it's conditioned by or dependent upon having that experience and it's conditioned upon not having this this whole other range of experience, right? So we call it conditional happiness. The Buddha also talked about another kind of happiness that we could refer to as unconditional happiness. The happiness, the welfare, the well-being of all beings was really the main concern of the Buddha and all of his teachings. And oftentimes when we do metta, as we'll do at the end of the day, at the end of the evening tonight, we'll do some metta, some loving kindness practice, and there's some prayers, may all beings be happy. So we use the word happiness rather loosely, I would say. And when we wish happiness for ourselves and for others, we may have a different sense of it, each of us. Certainly, for myself, I, when I use it, I do mean when people feel the experience what we would call conditional happiness as opposed to suffering. No question about it. I also, when I use that word happiness in a Dharma context, um, I'm also thinking of what we call unconditional happiness. So what does it mean when we talk about unconditional happiness? not dependent upon anything, right? It's the happiness that's not dependent on getting certain experiences that we want, and it's not dependent on keeping away other experiences that we want. It's a happiness that's to be found independent of any particular experience, so when people use uh, word, terms in meditation, they'll, they'll refer to it as uh, inner peace and inner happiness. Those are kind of terms that get used around meditation practice quite a bit, right? It's almost kind of a cliche when people talk about inner peace, inner happiness through meditation. But there is uh, that experience that can arise not because of anything, and we're lear- actually learning how in the midst of our lives, just as they are, to find really a freedom might be another word rather than a happiness, to find a freedom 
a liberation. That was what the Buddha was pointing to, a liberation. I think probably for all of us, at least to some degree, most of our lives are in pursuit of the conditional happiness. It's pretty much all we do. You know, even uh, I think all creatures, all living beings are just programmed that way. Even single-celled organisms, there'll, there'll be certain stimuli and they'll go towards that. Maybe it's their food or if they like light, they'll go towards the light or whatever. If they're single-cell organisms that don't like light and you put a light, they'll tend to go away from it. It's just built into, I, th- I believe, being alive. I don't think we're going to stop going after this conditional kind of happiness, wanting to f- feel better. Right? That's what we all want. We're not going to stop that. And we want to be clear that when we use the word conditional or unconditional, there's not a judgment there. It's not saying, well, conditional happiness, that's uh, more mundane or it's not as deep. It's, it's just making the distinction so we can be clear. There's no problem going after the conditional happiness. It's just that it's dependent on getting on certain causes and conditions and having certain experiences. So we just need to be clear and we need to understand that when the, the conditions are right and the experience is right, if we're going after the conditional happiness, we will have that experience. And we just need to know that when, we're, when the conditions are different, when the difficult experiences arise, we won't have that happiness. So that the conditional happiness is dependent upon circumstances. It's dependent upon the kind of the vicissitudes of life, if you will, the way the winds of life happen to blow. And we all know that despite our best efforts to have our lives go in certain directions, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Life's uncertain. We can't control it. We're going to still keep trying to control it. I do. So what is the unconditional happiness? When we're doing Vipassana, meditation practice, what is it that we're doing? We're setting up a special circumstance in life where we sit in some position or lie down, whatever posture we take standing. We close our eyes. It can be done with the eyes open, but oftentimes we close it. We tend to uh, shut out certain experiences so we can uh, simplify the experiences that we choose to work with. And what we're really doing One way to think about Vipassana, that word Vipassana, which means um, seeing clearly is one way it's translated. We're trying to see clearly into the nature of experience, into the nature of our own being, to find a way to then just to be without aversion to the things we don't like and to find a way to be present without grasping and clinging on to the things we, and trying to hold on to the things we like, and just to find a way with equanimity to really be present for just the experience of our lives, to let life unfold in a way, on, in its own way. Let it unfold in its own way. If we can find the way where we can just be at peace more out of the relationship we're having with whatever experience is arising, without having it to be any way, even the, the painful we can still find that openness of the heart and that quiet mind just to be present even for that, that can allow us to be present for all of life. 
that inner, that's, that really is freedom. And we've all had tastes of this freedom. We've all had times in life when um, we're not in a struggle. We're not grasping and clinging tightly onto things. Or we're not pushing away. We're just in the flow. Right? We've all had, we just tend not to notice those because it's not a big deal when it's happening. We don't notice those moments, but we've all tasted moments of freedom. As those become more, uh, uh, as we bring more mindfulness to that, we can actually be aware and notice that, and that really can taste the freedom that's just there, and that's that inner happiness or inner peace. So these are these two kinds of happiness that the Buddha talked about. So I think kind of one of the good news is that this is one of these practices that can, can bring us both. It actually can enhance our ability to experience both kinds of happiness. Because for the conditional happiness, um, as we learn to quiet down, we, it's a tool that we can use in the midst of, say, if we're in a stressful situation or difficult ex- Situation, we can learn to be more calm, more peaceful, more centered to carry that with us, right? We feel better. Conditional happiness, right? If, you, if you're relatively new to meditation practice, and for many of us who aren't new too, it may not seem to you that doing meditation practice is bringing more calm, right? In other words, if you sit to meditate, and your mind's going crazier, right? You're agitated, like, when is that bell going to ring? I don't think I can sit here another minute. Or if you're falling asleep, or if you're sitting cross-legged and your knee hurts, or your back hurts, or whatever's going on, right? We know that we can, it's not always calm. And even after we've been practicing for many years, it's not always going to be calm and peaceful. The ability uh, to quiet and calm the mind grows. So we can have those experiences. But even in the context of long-term intensive retreat practice, there's sometimes when practice can just be it just be the sublime and wonderful and sweet. And you get up and you come back the next time and you know you're just you're in hell. So you can so you know. If, we, if we're trying just to get calm and peaceful and if that's our only strategy, I think it's a setup for some suffering because we're not always going to be able to control it. But we certainly see that we enhance our ability to, um, to be more peaceful and serene and calm and awake and free. So we can get more of the conditional. And it's also leading us right along uh, at the same time to, to the real deeper freedom, the unconditional. Right. We sit down, we close our eyes. I don't know everyone's practice here, but typically we teach starting to work with the breath. Over time, it trains the mind. We develop a little concentration, our ability to stay present. Our mindfulness uh, grows, our concentration grows, and then we take that trained mind and we turn it directly into this mind-body process to really dive deep within ourselves to find out what is really true. What is our true nature? Who am I? What am I as a being? So we're in a structured conscious way going within to see what was there. Well, as many of you know, sometimes what we're going to find isn't what we wanted to see, right? We'll, we'll find the beauty that maybe we didn't know was there. And we'll find the mm, not so beautiful that maybe we didn't know was there. 
if I can say it that way. That has sort of a tone of putting a judgment on it. I don't mean it that way. But just, you know, we, we start to see everything. It's revealed because that's what we're doing. We're closing our eyes. We're sitting quietly and we're going in. in. That's what's going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised when difficulties arise. Sometimes people feel like the meditation practice is going wrong because difficulties start to arise. But that's just, we put a judgment on that because we think it's going well when we're calm and peaceful, when we feel expanded, open, whatever, however we think about it. But it's not going wrong when, di- when difficulties arise. We're going just to let, the, let ourselves be what we are, let the experience of our lives just express, whatever that is. And our job is to just be f- awake, clear, and present for that just open unfolding of ourselves, of our being, for whatever it is. And that's the real freedom, not just having it to be beautiful or pleasant. So the practice can really bring us both. It's kind of like when people say wanting to have your cake and eat it too. You actually can do it, I think, in this practice. It really does um, lead to that. Um, And so I just want to point out a couple of other things that I think are important as we go through this process. When we talk about finding freedom in the midst of our lives or in the midst of whatever experience we're having, I think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes whatever's going on, whatever the experience is, it really is too much sometimes. It can be too much. And we're not able to be present with it, right? We've all had experiences that, you know, I can't be with this. It's too much. It's either either so powerfully pleasant that we're just lost in it. Or it's so unpleasant that it just crushes us. I remember sitting a, a retreat. I don't know how many years ago this was, maybe five or six, with my daughter. She had just turned 17, and it was her first meditation retreat, a 10-day retreat. And I had injured my neck, uh, and it was in a, I was in a lot of pain, and it was this shooting kind of pain down the nerve. It was just, it was not only strong pain, but the quality of it was very, very difficult to be with. And I could not find any, there was no, I couldn't lie down. It didn't matter what position I was in. It just wouldn't go away. Pain medicine didn't help. It was awful. It went on for several months. So normally I wouldn't have gone to the retreat except my daughter was going to be there and I wanted to do it with her. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to the retreat and I'm just going to be present with this. And I'm going to sit and it'll just be the rising of this sensation and I'll just go into it. And that was what I was going to do. (laughs) Well, I couldn't do it. It wasn't even close. And I was trying and trying, and it was just awful. And so I went to one of the teachers, and I said, you know, what I was trying to do. And he just said, "Uh, well, why don't you lie down? Oh. You know, I guess I could have thought about that myself. (laughs) But somehow, you know, he wasn't, the teacher wasn't making a big deal about it. I had this image that I should be able to be present, sit. That's just what's arriving, connect with it. You'd think I would learn once another time when I was was young. Now, for this next one, this was many years ago. I was newer into the meditation practice, and I went to have a, a cavity filled. So I said to the dentist... No Novocaine. <laughs> I'll just be present with the experience. <laughs> well, that was a big mistake. <laughs> big mistake. I did actually make it through, but you know, I knew real quickly with the first drill that um, 
I had made a big mistake. It was too much. I think sometimes people can get a judgment that they think I should be present for this. I should be mindful or awake for that. And whenever that word should comes up, we want to be very careful. We, that's a word that we could, I think, just let go of. Because in this practice, there's no should. There's no should. There really isn't. There's no should. That's where we create a lot of suffering when that should comes in. So what we want to acknowledge is is that it's nice if we can have this unconditional freedom that may be the freedom of a Buddha, whatever that might be, that level with whatever the situation is. And you know, when it's too much, then it's just too much. That's what's real and true in the moment. That's actually the truth. It's too much. So the art of all of this is knowing when it's time, when we can recognize that, you know, it's too much and I need to take care of myself and to be able to back away. On the other hand, we don't want to back away at the first unpleasantness because then we don't learn, we don't train our minds to be able to be present for, for difficulty. So it's finding the balance there of taking care of ourselves but also no, trying to meet our experience and working. That's why in the practice we start hopefully relatively easy. We want to get in a posture where we're not in too much pain if we can. It doesn't matter what position we get in. Eventually we'll get enough pain if we stay there long enough. So we don't have to worry about that. If you want some pain to work with, it will come. But find a position that's, that we can work with. Close our eyes. We don't want to be in too noisy if we can, at least in the beginning. And so we start to work simple just with the breath. Can I be present with the breath? Everyone here, even if today's your first time to ever meditate, even just sitting for half an hour, everyone here now knows that even that, it's hard to do. To just really be present with the breath, right? It's not so easy. So we learn, we train, and we expand out. And hopefully then it expands, not just sitting on the cushion, but just to carry into life and to find that freedom. But we don't start with the biggest, hardest thing. That's real important. Right. I was thinking of this because I was just talking with someone who is, uh, some of you know I teach in one of the state prisons. And this particular prison, it's a Salinas Valley prison down at Soledad. It's really one of, has the reputation for being one of the worst prisons in the state system, whatever worst means. It's definitely, you know, it seems pretty bad to me. You know, it's not a place you want to be. So there's people in there who are really up against some difficult situations. Maybe they're in a gang, and now that they're getting into the Dharma, they don't want to be in the gang anymore. And the gang's not going to let them get out of the gang, or their life is in danger, let's say. And then the person's telling me, well, I should be loving and peaceful, well, if he can find a way to be loving and peaceful, I think that's great. But if what he really is is afraid and angry, that's the starting point with what's actually real and true in the moment. And he was creating a lot of extra suffering on top of everything else because he had the should. I should be a certain way. So I think the key to the conditional happiness is the should kind of does fit in with the conditional happiness. We know how we want it to be. We want to set it up and it should be this way and not that way. The key to the unconditional happiness is just the opposite. We take away the should and just open and be present just as it is. We don't have to do anything with it. And we remove that, that suffering we create that tension we create between what's real. There's a gap sometimes between what's actually real and the way we think it should be. And the wider that gap or the bigger the should, the more we suffer. Right? Isn't that true? If there's a real close connection between what's the actual experience, what's actually real in the moment, and our idea of how it should be, 
if the gap's close or no gap, life is good. We're happy. As that gap gets wider, the wider it is, the more, the bigger the should is, or the, or the bigger the disconnect between what is and what we think the should is. That's when we suffer. So I think that's about all I wanted to say about that. Um, let me just check my notes. I may have a few other things. I think that's basically what I wanted to talk about. So now let me ask again if anyone either has any comments or questions. It could either be about this or it may have brought something else up. First of all, I want to apologize for being late. One-on-one was a parking lot. We left in time. I appreciate that because I came up 101 myself, and it was pretty thick traffic. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, your thought about uh, should is really interesting um, to me. Uh, one of the most um, kind of aha experiences I've had in uh, positive practice was when I was back at INS, and there was a, a list. Anybody that's been back at INS knows that it's in silence, and there's all these lists that go up. There's notes and things because there's no way to communicate, so you get all these lists. And uh, one of the lists that went up said, uh, these are the things that the Buddha says that to talk about them is of no use. And uh, just reading this list, it was so free because it was kind of like all these shoulds just dropped away. Like uh, one was kings and leaders and armies and battles and uh, fortunes. And you know, it's, it went on down the list. And it was in terms that were relevant at the time, but it was basically all this stuff that kind of come, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, this is all these shoulds. Somehow, I, if I live my life really well, I'll accomplish one or two percent of all the shoulds. So anyway, thank yeah. you for reminding me. Yeah. And actually what you reminded me is sort of just listening to you is another take that I have on this, which is um, we don't even have to think of it in terms of getting rid of the shoulds. All we have to do, and that, that's one way to think of it, and if that's useful for us to help the mind be free and peaceful, that would be a good way to work with it. Another tool we can put in our toolkit that could also be useful is, is just to notice when we're suffering. If we can be awake enough to notice when we're suffering. Because we tend to act, you know, we tend to, we don't tend to, we, we do. When we're suffering, it's like, <gasps> and we get contracted, not this, right? That's, I don't want this, <laughs> But we can shift our whole relationship with it. Instead of not this, it can be, oh, suffering. What is that telling me right now? That is my teacher right now, right? Oh, what it's telling me is that gap between what's real and true, the actual reality, and the way I think it ought to be, depending on how strong the suffering is, is, Wider. That's all it's telling me. It can tell me that. And then, if I can be awake enough, and that's the, cl- the clue or the key, is to be awake enough, and that's the challenge, really, and the difficulty, is to be awake enough to know that without reacting. And then, maybe I have some choice. Can I now, how can I be with what actually is? I Maybe I can, and maybe I can't. But at least I've got the possibility of choice. And sometimes we can't let go of the should. We can't let go. We're not ready to let go. Right? And then we're going to we're just going to suffer, that's all. It's not a judgment about it. And then that's when we need a lot of compassion for ourselves. 
to know, yeah, you know what? I'm stuck. It's got me. I'm suffering. Have you ever had the experience where you're suffering? You know you're suffering. You know why you're suffering. And you can't stop it. <laughs> right? Every few people are laughing because we all know this, right? So even the mindful awareness by itself is one piece that we need, and it's real important. But sometimes it's not alone, uh, enough by itself. We often talk about, I think I say this probably every time I come here and talk, but I, it's so important what they call the, these two wings of the Dharma, the wisdom and the compassion. are thought of as the two wings. And it's like they say, if a bird wants to fly, both wings have to be in balance. And if one wing's not in balance, the bird can't fly. So if we want to fly, if you, if you want to use that image, we need to have the wisdom, which is really coming out of the... the, the mindfulness is not wisdom. Mindfulness, Mindful awareness is sort of the key or the, the tool. But the wisdom that arises, or we can talk, say, mindful awareness. But sometimes we need the compassion, right? And that's exactly the time, you know. One of the images I love that the uh, Buddha used is um, the image of the two darts. When someone once asked the Buddha, what is the difference between an enlightened person and an ordinary person? And the Buddha said, well, both the enlightened and the ordinary person experience pain and suffering and difficulties and, and, and happiness, just all of the conditions and experiences of the world. It's like being shot with an arrow. So if it's painful and you're shot with an arrow, both the enlightened person and the ordinary person feel that pain. The ordinary person makes a big problem about it. It's like shooting yourself with a second arrow. The enlightened person is allowing life to unfold in its own way. And when it's painful, it's there. and doesn't add this other level of suffering on top of the experience. So that the mind is free in the midst of the experience. And I think that's actually a beautiful image. I like it a lot. I found it helpful. Um, and especially for those times when I'm starting to become more aware, say, right? The meditation practice is working. The mindfulness is, is, is growing, deepening. I'm shot with the first arrow. There's something difficult in life, whatever it is. A situation, a loss physical pain, emotional suffering, something. That's the first arrow. Sometimes I can see that, sometimes I can not shoot myself with the second arrow, or sometimes it's like, okay, getting out the arrow, getting ready to shoot. You know what? I'm going to shoot myself with the second arrow. Here I go. Yep. <laughs> I wasn't able to stop it. I'm not ready to let go. Whatever letting go, what's that magic about? When, what is, how does letting go happen? It's kind of magic or a mystery maybe. I don't know. But when we're ready to let go, we can let go. I don't know. That's when we need the compassion. That says, yeah, you know what? I'm suffering. It's hard. Any other thoughts or questions or comments? Yeah, I want to thank you very much for your your talk this evening. Um, I had an experience just a couple days ago of sitting in one of my favorite places looking out over Lake Michigan and noticing those happy experiences arising and then also noticing trying to cling to them. You know, it's kind of like they'd, they'd arise, and then as they'd start to fade, like trying to bolster, you know, like trying to like amp them up a little bit or grab onto them. And um, it was kind of a game. I mean, I had nothing, you know, I was on vacation, I had nothing to do. So I was just kind of watching how. <clears throat> how that happiness can kind of come and go. And the coming was great, and the going really kind of, 
I mean, there's just so much conditioning to wanting to like figure out how to make it last longer. Um, it, was, it was fun to kind of have situation where I could play with that, mm-hmm. you know, and not, not sort of Not have it so serious. Mm-hmm. It's like losing your ser- losing your conditional happiness is often a real serious match. <laughs> More often than not. <laughs> mm. But it sounds like a lot of freedom. There, a lot of o- awareness and freedom to be to be with that and be awake to it. You know. So. Going back to it. You were talking about a little bit earlier with the shoulds. It just occurs to me that that not only applies to yourself, like I should, or you know, you should say should, right? um, also to other people too. Though you, know, you get all twisted up thinking, oh, he should do that, or right. you know, whatever. George Bush should go to war or something, right? But uh, the fact of the matter is, it is what it is. Right. You can't do anything about it. So, well, I shouldn't say that, but. It is what it is. Right. If you decide to go to a war protest or something, it's just something that you do experience right. yourself. Hmm. No, I think that's real important, and um, I've thought about that a lot because I was. Um, a few people here know back uh, who I've known for a while, back when the presidential election was going on, and I was sort of hamming it up a little and having a good time, but. I was suffering around, you know, and, and I don't want, I know in a room here, there's not that many of us, but we may all have different politics here. And uh, so the comment I'm about to make is nothing about your, your politics may be 180 degrees different from mine. That doesn't matter. I'm just trying to make a point. I was going crazy at the, the prospect that Bush was going to be president. And I would walk around and I'd say, if Bush becomes president, I'm going to die. I'm going to physically die. <laughs> I mean, I really was suffering, right, uh, about that. Um, so it, I don't think, and I, this is just what, really what you're saying, just to reiterate it, that, that we don't stop caring, and, but we can see how much suffering there is around it. And some, I didn't die. Uh, actually, sometimes that's what scares me. I'm thinking, I, I found myself saying, well, you know, he's all right. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> that's how my mind goes. But, uh, but anyway, I think what we're saying is real important, and that gets off into a whole other topic of, how do we, if we're accepting everything, none of us accept everything, but if we're, that's what we're working towards in, uh, uh, increasing our ability to do that, where is the place for taking action and making change? Right? Because we t- it tends to come out of the should. Uh, and... Um, I think what's going on and what's probably many of you know what's called uh, socially engaged or engaged Buddhism, which is a movement that's really coming on in the West more of um, taking social action and being involved. But instead of coming out of aversion in the should, it's just more coming out of the ability to be fully present with how it is. And out of that, out of really genuine caring to move forward, not in aversion, so we don't end up being, you know, angry, pissed off activists, but we end up, be, you know, for moving towards the greater good out of our positive caring to say, no, this isn't the way I want things to go. I want to, I want to shift society in this way somehow. So it's our motivations it shifts and. So I don't think we lose that, uh, and I don't think you were saying this, but I just, we don't lose the, uh, uh, our caring and our, and our motivation and, and our call to action if we have that. So, so thank you. Any other, anything else? We don't have to keep having questions, but I um, just want to leave space for it. Okay.
Well, then, um, what I would invite you to do is we'll do a little more practice. Um, and we'll start with a little, uh, we have about 15 minutes left um, this evening. And we'll definitely end with a little metta. But let me just ask a question since there's people here I don't know. Is there anyone here who is, is, does, and, I, and if you don't feel comfortable, you know, don't feel pressured to say, but if you do feel comfortable, do you, anyone here who isn't familiar with this metta, this term metta? It's actually metta, but in the West here we say metta, loving kindness, but you're not familiar with that? A little bit? Okay. So let me just say a little something briefly about it. It's, it's a big topic. Um, in addition to the, the practices that the Buddha gave, he gave many, many practices that were practices to um, uh, deepen wisdom, and they were what we call liberation practices. Vipassana is one of those practices. And even though in Vipassana we talk, we talk about developing certain states, we want to get more concentration or get more mindfulness. So we are trying to cultivate states, but it's actually more just to allow us to be more present for whatever's going on. So ultimately, it's not about creating any special states. It's about waking up in a very deep way uh, behind, beyond, below the surface appearance of things to with whatever's going on. The Buddha also gave a whole other uh, class of practices that were very much about cultivating specific states of the mind and the heart. Um, some of these practices are, and this isn't the only ones, but some of these are uh, one classification or what are called Brahma Viharas. It means the kind of the dwelling places of the gods or of the gods and the, the, uh, like the heavenly abodes. And the idea is, is that they're just such exalted states that we can awake to that it's like being in the heavens. So you don't have to literally believe in these heaven realms or anything, but that's the idea of it. And there's four of them. Uh, this metta means loving kindness, and it was the first. Um, just for completeness, I'll tell you the other three is um, um, uh, compassion is the second one, which is karuna. Mudita, which is, which is normally translated as sympathetic joy, it's actually experiencing happiness at the happiness of others. And then the fourth one, upekka, is equanimity. So there's these qualities. So we're actually trying to cultivate certain states. That's the idea of it. And we were in, the Buddha really encouraged that a lot, along with the wisdom and liberation practices, just as a purification of the mind and the heart. Okay. So we'll do a little of that... Um, practice. So, um, and, and traditionally in, in our, the way we practice is we tend to end with, we always try to incorporate a little metta practice. And so you can see for yourself if it's a practice, some people that's their whole practice. Just doing these meditations on loving kindness or compassion or it can be your whole practice if you wanted to. Or you can incorporate it. Or some people don't do it at all and they just stick with the purely just Vipassana practice. So you can just see. So I would invite you to just find a, uh, uh, a posture that, to be as comfortable as, as your body will allow. To do this practice, you don't need to be in any fancy position. And then just if... if if your awareness was not connected in with the body and with the experience you're having, then bring it back in. The body is a good anchor, a good way to... Uh, it's the doorway or vehicle just to connect in. Just with whatever the experience is in the body. And also check in just with the heart and the mind, just the whole ex your whole experience of being. You know, and maybe you may have something up, some feelings or emotions, or maybe not, or thoughts.
and to see, can we be present with this experience? Just opening to it, connecting with it, feeling it. And if it's pleasant, can we really be there with it, but not having to hold on to it, just letting it be? And if it's unpleasant, can we be with it without having to push it away, just to allow it to express? So letting go of any judgment we have about what the experience should be or shouldn't be. If you find it difficult to be present with your experience... Then acknowledge that, notice that, and see, can I be present with that? Can I be present and just allow my inability to be present with this other experience? So it's, this is like layer after layer of opening to what's real in the moment. And if there's something that keeps us from being present, we turn towards that. Now can I be present with that? And then again, if I'm not able to be present with that, what's keeping me from that? And we turn to this next thing. And it's an effort deepening. Vipassana practice can be thought of as a radical practice of deep self-acceptance of great kindness towards ourselves. So you could continue, if you'd like, just with the mindfulness practice. Or you can actually start to actively send some of this loving kindness, this metta, to yourself. And it's not important whether or not you actually have the feeling, the experience of metta. Um, even just inclining the mind in that direction or just having the intention or the wish or the desire uh, that you could have meant it towards yourself is, is enough. And if it's useful, you could uh, repeat silently to yourself one or more of these traditional phrases um, that, that I will say and you could even make your own phrases up. Traditional phrases are, may I be happy. So just that very, very simple idea or thought, may I be happy. Just wishing happiness for ourselves. May I be peaceful. May I be free from inner and outer harm. May I be free from suffering.
And then you can continue sending the metta toward yourself. Or if you'd like, you can now extend your awareness out to all the people here in the, in the uh, meditation hall and send that same metta out to everyone here. May everyone here be happy. May everyone here be peaceful. And may everyone here be free from suffering. can continue with that if you would like, or you can allow your awareness to expand out, radiate out beyond this room and out um, into the community, into the world, and sending out uh, this loving kindness, this metta uh, in all directions uh, to all beings everywhere. Just as I wish to be happy, may all beings everywhere be happy. Just as I wish to be free from suffering, may all beings everywhere be free from suffering. And then finally to end with this prayer. This comes from the Metta Sutta, which is a discourse of the Buddha on on Metta, on loving kindness. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings 